Welcome to Create Your Own Light, where we harness our past, we embrace our future, and learn to conquer the roadblocks along the way together. I'm your host, Travis Howes. Let's get on with it. This episode is brought to you by YourWelder.com. YourWelder.com is an online directory of mobile welders. Whether at your home or at your industrial processing plant, we come to you. Our community of mobile welders can repair anything from the neighbor's mailbox that you just backed into or the cat bulldozer sitting on your job site. YourWelder.com is a directory of highly skilled professionals willing to help you on your job site on your timetable. YourWelder.com screens all of their welders using tools like photos from social media apps such as Instagram, Parler, and Facebook, even face-to-face meetups. YourWelder.com was built by actual industry welding experts who actually perform this type of work on a daily basis. And here's the best part. They're veteran-owned and operated. So go check them out at YourWelder.com. And also feel free to check them out on social media where I'll include their links in the show notes. I've, I've literally been sitting here waiting to hit this record button for, I think, seven to eight minutes now because uh, I got my so my little dog is like a little basset hound slash Dotson. She's mixed with something. It's one that we rescued four years ago and uh, she's older, but her name's Charlie. I call her fat Charlie, but she got these long toenails and I'm sitting here at the farm recording. <laughs> Every time I go to hit record, she walks by and her long ass toenails are hitting the hardwood floors. And I know it would pick up in the back and it would sound really weird. So she finally walked her little fat ass into a different room. So if she walks back in here, you look, listen, we're just, we're just all fucked. And we're going to have to listen to this, the toenails and you, and it may not pick it up. I don't know, but I try to make it as comfortable for your listening pleasure as possible when I'm recording and literally just took the wind chimes down. Cause I have wind chimes on my front porch and there's a nice breeze out there and it's blowing and it's just all pleasant. And I can't let y'all hear how relaxed I am. I got a lot to say today, but I really don't have shit to say. Um, I don't know if you can hear, but my voice is extremely strained. I, uh, my throat is killing me. I feel like I literally just got done doing gay porn auditions all week and my throat is just, is just hurting y'all and I don't have any lozenges. Um, here's what happened. All right. So I made it, I made it through an entire week, one solid week, two classes a day of post-traumatic purpose in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I know that some of you know this, some of you may not. I'm teaching 20 post-traumatic purpose courses to first responders and spouses in Chattanooga, Tennessee over the next uh, three weeks. So this week I have off, I just did 10 classes. And it knocked my dick in the dirt. I'm not even going to lie. Um, I've done multiple classes before. And the, the the thing is, I when, when I when I roll, I don't phone anything in. When I was doing stand-up comedy, right? It, in comedy, your jokes, it's like second nature. It's repetition. It's muscle memory. Once you've done it a thousand times, you can go up there and make it look like this is the first time you're ever telling this joke. And that's what I always worked really hard to do. And and the hardest part about that is, although it's not new to you, many times it's brand new to the ears that are about to hear what you have to say. And you have to remember that. 
anytime you do anything. And that's why I try to pour my heart into everything I do. I'm like, look, I may have said this and this, this may be not new to me, but the people that are sitting out here listening, it is new to them and you don't want to phone it in and you want to be able to speak with conviction and with passion. And if I'm going to tell you what, man, I, I should, I should be a Southern Baptist preacher. I think y'all I'm going to go ahead and, and I'm going to go ahead and go baptize myself today with underwater hose. I'm going to call one of these preachers down the road to come over in his jean shorts and baptize me. And I'm going to get right and I'm going to start preaching. No, I'm kidding. I'm not doing all that. But listen, my throat was killing me after day two in, in Chattanooga. I mean, absolutely killing me. I don't believe in sipping honey tea and honey hot water and, hey, eat three Twinkies, gargle a bag of M&Ms and drink some salt water. And that's the magic potion. I don't believe in, in, in home remedies. I just don't do that. I always, I suck it up and I press the fuck on, man. And, and that's just what I do. So <clears throat> my voice is a little, is, is hurting. So anyway, what I'm getting at is it was hard to go out there and deliver day in and day out for five days, two courses a day, 10 courses in Chattanooga. But let me tell you something. I'm glad we did. And those brothers and sisters, they came out, uh, they're doing mandatory training where it is, it is kind of funny because typically on your post-traumatic purpose events, we don't make them mandatory. I, I honestly don't have a say so in a post-traumatic purpose event on if it's mandatory or not. Most of the times they do it. It's voluntary. I have done a lot of mandatory, but let me tell you something. It is nice to see a department not give anybody any choices. And they're like, look, this is important. We know it's important now. We can no longer look the other way. And we have to do something about this. And we're not, this is the beautiful part. We're not just putting a check in the box like a lot of departments do. A lot of departments will be like, all right, we're going to have some bullshit training. And we're going to do it mandatory. And we're just going to check a box and send you on your way. And Chattanooga said, fuck that. The leadership at the highest level is all in. And I love seeing that. Now, Boots on the ground, different story, right? So they reminded me of me on day one, on day one, you could see it on their faces. And I loved it because I was like, all right, motherfuckers, we're about to roll. We're about to go. We're about to go toe to toe in here. Cause I know you just got drug in here for a mandatory class. You don't know who the hell I am. You don't know what I'm about to say. And it was very funny because day one, class one, this firefighter walks by me. I'm standing in there around some other firefighters. He had no clue who I was. And he goes, man, we got to come in here for this bullshit sensitivity training. And he kept walking by and I'm dying laughing. Cause I'm like, this motherfucker has no clue what this class is apparently. So I walk over to him and I grab him and I say, Hey sir, I said, uh, my name's Travis. And he looked at me like, okay. And I said, I'm the guy giving this bullshit sensitivity class today. And it was open mouth insert foot time. And, and, and you, should, you could see it in his eyes. And he started backpedaling. He's like, uh, uh, uh. And I was like, look, dude, I get it. I get it. I said, I was on the job, man. And when, when I had to go to a class like this, I was the same dude saying the same exact shit. But here's the difference. This ain't sensitivity training. This is nothing like sensitivity training. My courses, I open up with this. I know if you think this is sensitivity training, I can understand why, because the word mental wellness is in there. And all of a sudden we think, oh, we have to go in here and be kinder and gentler. I'm not that dude. I think anybody that listens to me will tell you I'm not a soft person. Am I a compassionate person? Yes, I, I have extreme compassion, but I'm also an extremely hard man. 
And you can be both at the same time. It's not hard. What is hard is being a hard man all of the time and not having compassion. It's exhausting. And I'm going to tell you why it's exhausting because it's bullshit and it's fake. And what we do as men, and I'm speaking as a man because I'm, look, I know in today's society, you can be a fucking woman if you want, or you can be a man. I'm, I'm a man because when I look down, I see my twig and berries. So I'm a man. So I'm not saying women can't be this way. That's not what I'm doing. So don't take this wrong. There are hard women out there too, but I'm a man and I can only speak from a man's point of view on this, what I'm talking about now. I think it takes more of a man now that I'm an older, wiser, mature man. I think it takes more of a man to admit when he has problems. I think it takes more of a man to be able to, to, to be compassionate for someone. What I think is weak is a man that doesn't know how to turn off being a hard man all of the time. And I think that's weak because of this. I think it's a front. I think it's a way that a weak person shields the world from seeing them become vulnerable. I really do. And so what I did is I just opened up the classes with, look, I appreciate y'all being here against your will. I really do. Because I too would have been coming down here kicking and screaming on my work day. Shit, I would have called out sick on my work day. Fuck that. I'm not going to some feelings class. But it's really neat to see how they come around when you're teaching a class like this. As soon as you open your mouth and they they realize like, all right, this dude is one of us. He's not some he's not some professor coming down here to talk about, hey, a color chart like are you feeling blue? Are you feeling orange? And how we should speak to one of, that's not it's not that. So it is nice to see once the class gets going. I, I call people motherfuckers all the time. I'll just be straight up. It is nice to see those motherfuckers relax a little bit and start like nodding their heads like, okay, all right, we're on board now. You got us. So thank you, Chattanooga. It was, it, it's a lot of fun. So I got, I got 10 more to go in Chattanooga. I want to talk about a couple things though, man, because I'm not, I'm not going to teach my course on here. That's not what I'm going to do. But while I was there, while I was teaching, man, I, 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 I wasn't able to record an episode. So today I'm at my farm and I honestly thought this was going to be the first Monday. I would, wouldn't be able to release an episode, but I'm going to do it. And I promised y'all, I'm always going to deliver on every single Monday. I'm going to find a way. I drove back all night last night. I got back in the middle of the night and I was like, man, I'm just going to sleep all day, but I didn't. I woke up. Here we are. We're recording, right? I want to talk about a few things today that I that I do kind of cover in post traumatic purpose, and I, and I'm not going to obviously go in depth because that course is you know it can be four hours long. I'm obviously going to try to wrap this up in forty minutes. But one of the things I want to talk about is leadership. I love seeing effective leadership, and one thing I hate is stagnant leadership. And you can see stagnant leadership all over the place, and sometimes. It's hard to see effective leadership because there's so much um, complacency and st- I don't know if st- stagnance going around that it really limits effective leadership sometimes. And leadership often they get so much um, I get I guess so much um, backlash sometimes it makes it look like they're not grind into the bone when they really are. I mean, I see it everywhere I go. I want to tell you something about leadership. One of the main things that I talk about in my course with leadership is this. Uh, 
the most important thing a leader to me, and this is to me because I've seen this in every aspect of my all the careers that I've been in, right? One of the, the main things the leader has no choice but to be amazing at is support. You can be great at all these other things, right, as a leader. But if you fail at support, you fail your people 100% of the time. And some people may may disagree with that, and that's fine. But my reasoning is this. If you fail to support someone and they come to you in their, in your, their time of need, you failed them. And that could be the last time they ever like open up to someone or, or, or even attempt to be vulnerable. And I've just seen this so many times. I've seen it so many times. Me, my case, for instance, if somebody came to me when I was on the job, I failed to support. I failed to support a lot of people because I was too worried about looking like a tough guy. And I wasn't as tough as I thought I was, but it was a front. I was a tough guy, but not as tough as I thought I was, or I was pretending to be. And I always pretended that I didn't need help. And anybody that would talk about help, I would make them feel like less of a, a firefighter or less of a police officer, less of a Marine because they needed help. Like I just, it wasn't in me to be soft and be compassionate for my people. And I tell firefighters all the time, like, and police officers, why, why is it that we can be compassionate for complete strangers in this world? Because that's what our job requires, Right. But when it comes time to be compassionate for one another, it's, it's, it's extremely hard for us to do. And even extremely hard for us to be compassionate towards our own family members sometimes. And you know why that is? It's vulnerability. We, we are more susceptible to being vulnerable with a complete stranger than we are with people that know us because we need people to know us for something that we're not, which is stronger than what we really are. That's what we need them to know. And we refuse to let them see us in, in any uh, other capacity than the strongest version of ourself. And that's kind of what it boils down to. And when I talk about leaders, I know there's leaders out there that they, they don't want to be bothered on their days off. And this is, this is rampant through the emergency services. I've seen it. I've experienced it myself. I teach this in the course. And one of the first things when somebody gets promoted into leadership position, they still think that they have that luxury of having days off, right? Now, maybe, maybe you don't have to actually report into work, but guess what? When you report as, excuse me, as when you take, when you take a promotion into a leadership position to me. You know, you, you sacrifice that luxury of having days off. And what that means is this, you always have to be available for your people. And if you're not available for your people and you think, oh, I'm just not getting paid today. So I ain't picking up my fucking phone. Then you're failing your people because leaders put all that other stuff to the side and they take care of their people. That's where that support element comes in. I've seen it. I've been that guy. I've experienced it on many fronts and it still goes on today. And it just, it makes me sad because I know there's a lot of people out there. Like I once was, I can still am from time to time. Shit. Let's, let's not call it, let's call it what it is that need help. And sometimes they need that shoulder and they need that one person that they can confide in. And if you're that one person as a supervisor and you're not available for them, you fucking failing them. 
plain and simple. We talk about hypervigilance a lot, and uh, I, I speak on this too on here and in my course, but let me tell you all how hypervigilance burned my ass, and then hypervigilance actually turned into a very funny situation while I was in Chattanooga this week. So two stories, and they both take place at Arby's. Separate Arby's, separate days. Check this out. So on day one, when I finished teaching two classes, I was smoked. I got out of there at four o'clock and I just needed something unhealthy that would, would knock me into a food coma and I wouldn't wake up till the next morning. So Arby's was right across the street and I went and got several sandwiches, the largest curly fries they could and a big ass lemonade. And I was feeling hypervigilant. I felt like, man, I need to watch the door. I need to watch every car that comes in the parking lot and any person that enters and exits this building. And I talk about how exhausting this is. And I talk about my backgrounds made me this way. I don't think banker Bob has the same condition that I have. I I'm pretty sure banker Bob can, can go sit down in an Arby's with his family or by himself and not think about the things that I'm thinking. So here's what happened. I'm always working on myself. I go in, I order my food. I'm the only person in the entire restaurant, right? In the dining area. I take my food and I'm about to sit facing the door. And I said, you know what, Travis, for one time in your life, do it differently. Control the situation. It's not going to be nothing. Nothing horrible is going to happen. You're not going to be underprepared. Sit down with your back to the door just for once. Just try it. And I did. And man, I'll tell you something. It felt great. It felt great until I saw this truck pull up and I see this guy getting out of his uh, his truck. And I clearly profiled the guy because I was a police officer. And regardless of we like it or not, police officers criminally profile people. Notice I said criminally. We look for what criminals do, what criminals wear, how criminals act, what criminals drive, how criminals behave mannerisms dude gets out of the car i'm looking at him and he just appears like he don't give a fuck and as i'm looking at him guess what he's wearing he's wearing a second amendment hat and this dude has a jacket on the sun was up it was warm out and i notice a big bulge coming out of the right side of his body and he was an older man probably in his late 50s possibly and I see this bulge under his jacket. And first of all, I'm like, well, I know why he's carrying a jacket now because he's definitely got a weapon under there. And it looks like he's got a goddamn machine gun with a bazooka on top of it mounted to it because his jacket's sticking out like a mile that or he's got one full ass colostomy bag. But with the Second Amendment hat on, I was leaning towards he's got a weapon. So I immediately pick up my tray, move my drink. And now my heart is beating. Check this out. I sit down. My feet are under the table. And now I shuffle my feet to get me into an advantageous position should I need to get out of this seat. And either one, seat cover. Two, have a different plan of action. I don't want to get tangled up under this table. So I'm positioning my body. And this is what I'm talking about, how exhausting this can be. Now, this man could be good as gold. Or he could be coming in there having the fucking worst day of his life. Let's not forget Chattanooga just, or not just, but several years ago, they had a guy was walking to a reserve center and start shooting everybody. Okay. Not saying that that's what Chattanooga, that happens all the time, but this shit happens around the world. There's been plenty of people walking into restaurants and just start shooting people. 
So I'm like, oh, fuck, where's my weapon? Oh, guess where it is? It's in my minivan. Yeah, I said fucking minivan because I'm secure and I roll like that. All right. My weapon's in my minivan. So now in my mind, literally, I'm contemplating on how to kill this man. Like if he brings a gun in here, I can't get to my weapon. What am I going to use to isolate this threat or to neutralize him? He walks in. I literally am leaning out of my chair and I'm watching him as he's standing at the the counter. I'm trying to figure out with his right hand, he keeps putting it in his pants pocket, but his back is to me and I can't tell if it, is it if it's in his pants pocket or if it's on his on his gun so i immediately start watching the girl's reaction that's taking his order or, or seems to be talking to him i'm looking at her for any kind of sign of fright on her face and that's my telltale sign on a hey, i need to make a move well she ends up placing an order ends up giving this man a bag and he walks out and guess what when he walks out now his right side of his body is to me I clearly see plain as day one big ass firearm on his right hand side. So I wasn't wrong. Criminal profiling works. I knew there was a weapon under there. I had a great feeling. My training and experience led me to believe that. And I was right. Was he a criminal? No. But had that a situation broke bad? Guess what? He wouldn't have got me by surprise. And that's what I'm getting at. The problem is this. Look what happened. Nothing, nothing happened. He would just turn out to be a good person. He came in and got some food. Maybe he's a little paranoid for crazy people out in the world. And he just wants to be prepared too. And what I talk about is ever since I left my, my time in service, I always prepare for the worst situations. Every situation I'm in during the day, I'm always looking for threats. I'm always scanning and nothing ever happens. The world is actually not as bad as we think it is. The world is bad for two reasons, and I'm going to tell you why. It's bad to first responders, military personnel, because it's unfortunately the world we we operate in. And most people do not operate in that world. I volunteered to be a fireman, a police officer, and a Marine. So when you're in certain situations, it's because you wanted to be there. Now, when I leave and I'm not in uniform anymore, I'm not in that world anymore. I just want people to understand how, how extremely exhausting hypervigilance is. And it can affect your family because it, what it happens is I talked about on a different episode. We're not every really taking advantage of every moment that we have to live in, like to truly be in the moment because we're anticipating another moment ruining that moment. And it's hard work and it happens with a lot of first responders. Let's fast forward to the next day, the very next day. I told this story in my class. I told them what happened. And I told them like, look, we always plan for the worst. And if you sit back and look at how many times you've planned for the worst and how many times something happened, you're probably going to be shocked. Like nothing ever happened, but I'd rather be overprepared than underprepared. So I get it. So the next day, me and the training chief, (laughs) we go, we go back to another Arby's, all right, and we walk in, and I'm just trying to relax, man. He's got his back to me because I'm standing at the soda machine, and in walks this little girl, all right? This little girl walks in with blonde hair. She has a bowl in her hand, and she's got food in this bowl, and I'm and it's, and it's covered with something. And I'm like, first of all, why the fuck are you in Arby's bringing food into Arby's 
with a covered bowl. That's not normal. Most people wouldn't see that and think anything of it. I immediately think, okay, what's the situation here? Why is this girl walking in here? Why is she staring at the chief who I'm eating with? He's sitting down. He's eating his meal, doesn't see her. And I'm like, what the fuck is she staring at him for? She's uneasy on her feet, all right? She doesn't appear to be right. She walks over to this chief. As I'm filling my drink up, I'm watching her now. She walks up to him, points at him, and goes, you better watch your fucking back. And I'm like, oh, shit, what's going on? So now I immediately take my eyes off of her. I go back to the front door, and I'm like, who's coming through this door? I don't see anybody, so I look back at her. She walks over to me. We have no clue who this girl is. I have a fire department logo on the front of my le- on on my shirt. I was wearing an engine company leather t-shirt that those boys gave me out of Missouri. And there's a the fire department crest on there. She walks up to me, goes, you better watch your fucking back too. And she turns around with her bowl of food and just walks out. And I'm like, what the fuck just happened? So I go down, I sit down and I'm looking at the chief and I go, what was that all about? He says, bro, I don't know. And now we're both watching the door. And I go, man, let's eat these curly fries and get the fuck out of here. So true story. We start walking out the front door. And I was like, hold up, chief. I said, let's watch this parking lot for a hot second. And we're watching and we're looking at all the cars. We clear the doors. We walk out. He goes to the driver's side of his F-250. He gets in. Before I get in a vehicle, what do I do? The vehicle is the most vulnerable place a human being can be sitting in a car. Ask Tupac. You know how that worked before I get in this car. I literally put my eyes on every single car that was in that parking lot and in the parking lot across the street. And also I'm using my ears for any car that might be speeding up on us. And then I hop in the truck really quickly. And I was like, let's go ahead and go. Now, could you say I overreacted? Maybe. Could you say I was overprepared? Yes. But could you say I was underprepared? Fuck no. But here's the difference. Banker Bob would probably take that as, oh, just laughable and laugh it off. But what happens if that threat is real? What happens if somebody does come up with a threatening gesture and all of a sudden all of your spidey senses are correct and you got the drop on somebody? You get the upper hand. You see what I'm getting at? But at the end of the day, it's exhausting. And so you take that exhausting, take that exhausting, And now go home at the end of the day with your workload that's also exhausting. And then you go into your relationship or your marriage that is also exhausting because we know how exhausting that can be. And now mix that with your kids that's also exhausting. And you not offloading any of that doesn't do anybody any good. And that's how hypervigilance can wear you the fuck out. Day in, day out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out. I teach a I teach a section in my course called um, it's a it's about triggers. All right, it's, I don't call it anything, but it's it's about triggers and it's about smells and sounds and sights and locations and locations is a big one, especially in Chattanooga. Check this out because several years back they had a bus crash. I want to say that bus crash killed between four and six kids. I can't remember the exact number. All right. But it killed several several children, and it rocked those first responders as it should, man. Because those those calls are always they're they're always going to be the hardest one. Anything involving children. And then they had the reserve center shooting that killed I want to say five. 
four Marines and one sailor, uh, so five people. When a radicalized um, person went in there and, and shot up a bunch of innocent service members, right, who were just who were just at the, the center. And so when I talk about locations, I ask people, you know, we what this what this falls back on is our war zone, right? Because the military has a war zone. When they go to a war zone, they leave that war zone. They get to come back, not taking anything from them. But they get to actually be out of that war zone so they can work on themselves. And they got a lot of work to do, but at least they're not in that war zone. We do not have that luxury in our business. We in emergency services, we never leave the war zone. And I believe I've talked about this on other episodes. If you have a 30-year career, you're 30 years in a fucking war zone. And PTSD is PTSD. I mean, it's exposure is exposure. You don't have to have rockets coming in to be affected as the same way as a guy that had rockets shot at his ass or, or, you know, or, or had his friend shot the, the calls we go on are, are they're, they're very grisly things. A lot of times, extremely grisly things that, um, so we're not getting into to a dick measuring contest where we're comparing here in, in military and emergency services. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, we don't get to leave that war zone. So when we try to work on ourselves, it's extremely hard when you're around the constant triggers that mess you up. And so I asked those ladies and gentlemen sitting in that class, and I, and I asked them, I said, by, by a show of hands, who here worked that school bus shooting? And some would raise their hands. And I was like, let me ask you, or not school bus shooting, the school bus wreck. I said, let me ask you something. When you went by that school bus wreck, when you drive by that same route all these years later, can, can you drive by that and not think about it? And every single one of their heads shook no. And I said, who, who worked the reserve center shooting? And, and some firefighters raised their hands. And I was like, can you drive by that building without thinking about that? And they said, no. My hotel that I stayed at last week was on the same route just past the reserve center. So I had to pass it two times a day. And every time I passed that, I wasn't even on that shooting. Every time I passed it, I thought about that shooting. And that's what I'm getting at. And that's one call in one day in the life of a first responder over the course of a 30 year career. Now is every call like that? No, but there are a lot of fucked up calls that never make the headlines. they never make the news. Society has no clue that something happened that day in a certain location because the news just reports on all kinds of other crazy stuff. So only people know are the immediate families and the, 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 the service members who were there working that scene. Right. And that's what I'm getting at. Now imagine you're in your car driving down that same road where one of these incidents took place and you got your kids in the car and all of a sudden you're in the middle of a flashback and then you drive by another place a mile down the road from that and you're in another flashback and you're in another flashback and you're in another flashback and all of a sudden mommy or daddy behind the wheel is just ice cold and now everybody's curious at why mommy or daddy just shuts down all the time. And then when they react, they react inappropriately because guess what? Now you got the kids screaming in the back seat and you're li- you're reliving really a fucked up call that you just you just had to work. It's a very hard thing to explain why we why we are the way that we are, but if you just think about it with a little common sense, it actually makes a lot of sense. I do a, I do a section called communicating through trauma where we're great at communicating at work man, we suck at communicating at home. And all these first responders, they say, man, you know, I don't talk to my family because they don't need to know what I do. And I say the opposite. That's absolutely 
bullshit because your family does need to know what you, that you do because they need to know why you're the way that you are. And because you do what you do is why you're the way that you are. How can they understand that their behavior affects you in certain ways if you never communicate with them? Like in my case, man, I, I, I wouldn't tell my kids that or my wife that children screaming bothered me until it was too late because all I would do is react all the time. And then everybody's like, what the fuck is wrong with that guy? He's, he's, he's strange. Like Banker Bob doesn't get up and throw a chair across the room when his kids scream. But all of a sudden, Travis Howes, who's been through all these other crazy things in his life, when his kids scream, he jumps up, he freaks out, he cusses, he fucking throws a chair across the wall, he walks out, he stares his wife in the face like it's her problem, and all of a sudden, how do you think that makes the family feel? Then I go outside, and sometimes I'm crying, sometimes I'm not, sometimes I'm just in outer space, and you think me not talking to my family and telling them why I'm that way? Tell me again why you think that's a good idea? I'll wait. I'm going to pay some homage to some folks real quick. I can't call out the department on this because um, I don't I don't know everybody that listens to this podcast. And I don't want um, to single anybody out. But I will say this. I just had a department walk the fucking walk. And it made me so proud. I actually just had chills shoot down my entire body. And this is what I'm talking about. Recently, I'll get to this in a second. Recently, and I, I didn't really talk about this publicly because I was so disgusted with what happened. My daughter was um, at the farm, and long story short, horse she fell on the ground. A horse got a horse got startled, jumped, came down on her on her inside of her thigh, bruised her leg extremely bad, lacerated it very badly, and she was out there in the pasture screaming for help. All right, listen screaming for help for she said at least five minutes i was inside her mother was inside our other daughter was inside we didn't hear it this is a big property we did not hear her screaming i just walked out to get something and i saw her sitting out in the pasture and the animals were nearby and i was like why is she sitting on the ground what is she doing so i start walking out there and, I, and the closer i got and i was like is she crying so i start hollering at her and then i realized She's crying. And so I speed up my walk to her. I realized she wasn't, well, injured too badly, you know. So, again, we, case in point, I just called myself out. I still wasn't convinced she was hurt bad enough to cause a reaction on my part. Because that's the way I've been trained. That is exactly how we are on these scenes. I know injury and I know hurt. And there's two different things, okay? I immediately, in my mind, was like, all right, she's not injured to the point where this is severe. She's just crying. She probably twisted her knee or something. So I get over there, and she yells at me. She's like, Daddy, I was screaming for you. And I immediately saw her leg, and I was like, oh, shit, what happened? And now I felt guilty because I was screaming for you, and you never came. And that immediately made me think about, my friends dying in that fire. And I thought about how they were asking for help and we couldn't get to them. There's nothing we could do. And I immediately felt guilty and I'm not going to dive too deep into this, but I was, I was, I was overcome with guilt instantly. That's my baby on the ground. So I pick her up. She starts telling me what happened and she's still crying pretty good. And, 
I call her mom out and her mama comes out and her mama's like about on the verge of freaking out when she saw this. And I was like, Hey, calm down. I was like, keep, keep it together because you know what happens if kids see you scared, they're going to get scared. Same as a patient. When they see you scared, they're going to get scared. Right? So we hop in that minivan cause that thing's gangster like that. <clears throat> and uh, I felt like we were in a black Hawk doing an evac. I just threw her in the back and I'm sitting there cause the seats, my seats are down in my minivan and uh, you know, for storage and all that. And so we, we haul ass to the hospital where we're at and we get to the hospital and we tell you something, I'm not, I'm not even going to get into this too much, but we got treated like shit in the hospital. I stood there for over 10 minutes with my daughter who's crying. I'm very visibly like holding it together. Cause I don't know that her, her leg is not broken because the way she's behaving, I'm thinking it is, um, by what I'm seeing, I'm thinking it is, uh, but I just don't know. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold it together. I'm trying to be calm for over 10 minutes. That lady sat behind that fucking glass and never looked up at me and said, can I help you? I've had all the paperwork filled out while I was holding my daughter. All right. And I'm holding the paper there, fucking shaking, staring her in the face, wanting her to acknowledge my presence. Security guard comes over and says, can I get you a wheelchair? He did that after about five minutes of watching me hold this girl. I said, yeah, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be amazing, sir. So then I turn around two hands on the counter. I'm looking at this lady. She will not acknowledge my presence. I look at my wife and I said, you know what? I said, we're not going to get any fucking help here. And I said it loud enough. Everybody could hear. And I go, I got to make a command decision. Let's roll. So we rolled out. We've got my daughter. We walk out. Another couple sitting outside goes, did y'all seriously not get any help? And I look at them. So what the fuck do you think? And so we walk out, we put it and they're shaking their heads. Like this is disgusting. That little girl needs help. Now, if this would have been a vital situation, Travis would have raised hell. We we would have got some help. But the long, the more time went on, I felt like my daughter may have just been scared. And I didn't want to overreact and end up in prison by the way that I was feeling. So I was like, let's just go to another hospital. We go 45 minutes up the road to another hospital. It's funny because as soon as we walk in there, we're greeted with open arms. And uh, they they admit us immediately. They take care of us. But while we're sitting in here, now I'm getting to walk the walk. This is where we're going to get at about a department walking the walk. I had to set that up for you. Sorry to get long-winded, but we get there. I'm sitting there waiting for the doctor's results, and I get a frantic message that comes through my website. And it says um, something to the effects of, please help. Uh, we have kind of an emergency going on. I open it up. She, This lady was talking about an individual that she feels is extremely suicidal and she would hope that I would call her ASAP. Now, normally, this is not my place. I am not, let me let me go ahead and tell you, I'm not an emergency therapist. I'm not that dude. But I was in a department, teaching a department recently, and I don't know who their peer support team is. I don't know the people that are on that team. So I felt an obligation. I was like, shit, I got to address this woman. So I call her. She immediately starts telling me the story, the history, and all this. And I said, listen, let me stop you right now. Why do you feel like this is an emergency? Why do you feel this person's going to hurt themselves? And she goes, I'm going to read you a text message that was sent to me. She reads that text message. And I said, okay, stop. I don't need to know any more outside of your relationship. Because she was sitting there trying to justify this and justify. And I said, listen, I don't need to know all that. What I do know is that you do have an emergency. And now we got to find somebody. So I said, hang tight. I'm going to call you back. 
Let me tell you something. I called my contact in that department. They didn't answer right away. That didn't mean they were, they were too busy for me. I was sure that person had something going on. I immediately hit up the Instagram because I know another person in that department. I made contact with that firefighter. And I said, look, I got an emergency. This is what I got. Who's your peer support person? They give me that person's phone number. I call that peer support number. And guess what? He fucking answered. Boom. He didn't look at his phone and say, this is my off day. I don't recognize this number from Charleston, South Carolina. He fucking answered because he's on the fucking peer support team and you never know who's calling that phone. He gets on the phone. I tell him who I am. He was like, man, I was recently in one of your classes. I was like, that's awesome. Listen, this is what we got. He says, oh shit. Yep. I know who that is. Give me her number. I'll call her right now. How about that? Within three minutes, we got her on the phone. We got the situation under control. I did not me, not we, they did. And that's what I'm talking about. They got the situation under control. They addressed it and it's out of my hands, but they're handling it. Then my, my initial contact calls me back and he's like, Hey bro, sorry. I was getting the kids put to bed. What's up? And I was like, again, thank you for returning my call. They're all fucking over it, dude. And that's what I'm talking about. It wasn't one of those. Yeah, man. Um, we'll get to that Monday. We'll get to it next week. That's what I'm talking about. Availability. That is leadership. The failure to be available could have cost somebody their lives. And that's a fellow firefighter. I'm talking about could have cost that fellow firefighter their lives. But the mere fact that not just one, not just two, but three people from that same department, that same peer team made themselves available is why we're able to help help each other where you get these leaders that are like, well, I'm off the clock. I'm not getting paid. So I ain't fucking answering a goddamn phone. And you do have leaders that talk that talk like that. They'll tell you that. And that's what pisses me off. So anyway, that situation was handled. My daughter's leg was not broken. It was just very badly bruised nasty abrasion and she's already back here riding horses. So there you have it. So before I get out of here, I just want to let everybody know I got to pull my calendar up so I can get these dates right. All right. So I'll be back in Chattanooga at the Chattanooga fire and um, police training facility on Amicola highway. We'll start classes again, Monday, April 18th. And there's two classes every day. They start at eight and at 1 PM. Every single first responder in that area is welcome to attend. Every single first responder spouse is welcome to attend. Every single first responder's family member over the age of 18 is welcome to attend. And I encourage that. We had clinicians there. We had spouses there. We had mothers there. We had fathers there. I got a, I got a crazy story about a father, but... I can't tell it, man. It's like, I, I love telling stories, but it, this was, this is probably it's pushing the limits on inappropriate. And I'm sorry that y'all, y'all got to hear me say something's inappropriate, but I don't know if I can do that, but man, I heard one of the funniest stories and it, not, it wasn't even a story. It's I, I got, I got two people confused. All right. I had two people confused and 
I was made to believe that one person was with somebody else and it was just a head scratcher. And I wish I could tell you all this story, but I can't. Maybe I can. If I get authorization, I'll have to tell you all that story at another time. I'm going to try to get another episode out after this one. It really just depends because I'm uh, I got all kinds of you know, personal stuff going on this week, uh, trying to get ready for next week in Chattanooga. And when I'm in Chattanooga, I am just smoked, uh, cause I'm going to be doing 10 more courses there. And, uh, so, but I'm not bowing out. I'm gonna try to get it after it. Um, but y'all wish me luck and I hope y'all enjoyed this episode. We'll see you soon.